Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 102nd show, and I'm really excited about today's guest, who is Jonathan Brill, author of Road Waves. And I know Jonathan's really well-known futurist because I had someone from Ireland contact me today and said they couldn't wait to listen to uh, Jonathan, that they've been following him and watching uh, videos of him speak. So, Jonathan, welcome, and we're excited to have you. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it and can't wait to get into uh, what you've been thinking is you've been reading the book. Yeah, and it's a super book. And anybody who um, gets it is really going to enjoy the book, especially as you um, you lay out for them things that they should be thinking about themselves for their own uh, businesses and maybe even their own professional careers as well. So let's start talking about your background and what's a future futurist? And how'd you become one? That's a whole whole bunch of questions there. Um, so I I uh, was hired to direct long term planning and strategy at HP, the computer company, and I got my business card and it said futurist on it, and so that's that's how I uh, I um, became a futurist technically. <laughs> but what have I been doing for the last 25 years is, is uh, what both you and my mother want to know. Um, I've been working with companies primarily to understand where they need to be in the next five to 10 years and the small steps they need to take today to increase their optionality and potential, no matter what happens. And uh, what we're going to talk about today, it, it, I've done it in, in uh, food and FCPG, I've done it in, in retail, I've done it in consumer electronics, I've done it in software, uh, I've done it in government. These things work universally, what we're going to talk about. And they work whether you're, you're a massive Fortune 50 company like HP or, or Microsoft, uh, and they work if you're a small family farm too. So this is going to be relevant to everybody in the audience, which I'm really excited about. So I want to know, what do you read and listen to to get a clearer picture of the future? That, uh, I, my experience is that if you read the New York Times and you listen to Fox News, um, that's one layer of the future. You can go so much deeper. And fortunately, because of what they do, I get to read the, the really geeky ac academic reports and policy papers and and, and all of that stuff. Uh, I really like um, uh, the Hoover Institution, I think, has, has some really great stuff on, on YouTube and whatnot these days. Uh, I, I like uh, the, the uh, Atlantic Council. Uh, the World Economic Forums and other, uh, that's actually a, probably a really good global resource. I'm looking at some of the names on here and realizing we've got a global audience. Uh, World Economic Forum is probably the, the best easy to grok global resource. Um, but it's, it's really diverse and I, I do a lot more digging into the economic data and digging, you know, and, and going places and meeting people and seeing what's going on. Um, 
and primary research than than uh, than than kind of reading newspapers. That's if you want to get ahead of the future, you need to be where where it exists already, you know, and it's just not evenly distributed. So, why did you write this book, and what exactly is a rogue wave? So I wrote this book because I, I realized something about business that for the past 40 years, we've been focusing on how do we optimize our businesses? How do we get more efficient? How do we remove the fat? And that's based on an underlying assumption that the world is, is becoming uh, more harmonized, that, that uh, things are getting more consistent, that things are becoming easier so we can move faster. And all of those things have been true for the last 40 years. Uh, what we've seen over the last, uh, certainly since uh, over the last couple of years, four years, but but maybe since 2007, 2008, is that we're seeing a new uh, set of complications. We're seeing more volatility in, in, in the markets. We're seeing more volatility in, in geopolitics. We're seeing uh, more volatility starting in the next couple of years in technology. Um, and so we need to look at business differently. We need to think about strategic planning differently. Uh, we can't just optimize for what we know. We need to optimize for the range of volatility in front of us. And uh, I was just saying uh, before we started that I was listening to your chat with uh, with my good friend Martin Reeves earlier today. And um, yeah, we we were two peas in a pod in a lot of ways. Um, but some of his research suggests two things that I think are really important. One is uh, that the, the rate of value from innovation or the length of time you can extract value from innovation has dramatically compressed. Uh, the second thing uh, that he, that the BCG and McKinsey have been exploring over the last couple of years is this insight that the companies that plan for the longer term tend to do better uh, in the longer term. Stunning how that works. Um, and so the reason I wrote this book is about is, is that we don't have good tools for doing that kind of planning uh, if unless you're a, a government organization and so on and so forth. So what I did was I looked at uh, what are the range of best practices uh, in a broad variety of planning capabilities and, and, and I started to put those together into a single uh, program. So your second question was, what is a rogue wave? And I think that's a great question. So we think that the future kind of works in trends, that waves slowly build, waves of change slowly build, right? Uh, I, I don't know if you noticed how COVID works. That, that's not actually how the future works either. It, it tends to work in spikes. Uh, when uh, radically different, uh, or when, when different individually manageable ways of disruption collide, right? The reason that COVID has been such a challenge isn't because of it's a respiratory pandemic. We know how to contain those. It's because a range of other things happened around uh, the pandemic that made this one uncontainable where previous ones over the last couple of decades have been, right? So we saw a, a massive increase in density of population uh, in China, pushing out into the biome. So, so the likelihood of a spark, or a human, human to animal uh, contact, and then that density of, of population that, that you'd, you'd have transfer uh, was becoming greater. And when that happened, we built 16 high-speed rail lines across China uh, that enabled people to move much more quickly between cities. Uh, and 
between 2012 and 2019, the amount of uh, tourism out of China increased 10 times. So they moved from an irrelevant tourism spender to the largest tourism spender on the planet. My point is, uh, and this was happening around the world. It wasn't just happening in China. It was happening in India. It was happening in Southeast Asia. It was happening in, in Africa. And so the point is that, that the, these things were, were colliding to take something that was manageable and make it unmanageable. And that's how the future works. That's how rogue waves work. The individually manageable waves of disruption collide to create radical change. Um. How much of your childhood growing up in a fishing village, which I thought was pretty interesting, yeah. impacted the name and theme of the book? <laughs> and tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I um, I grew up spending time in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, at, you know, kind of the Harvard world, and in a fishing village in Maine. And so I got to see two sides of the world, one that the incredibly academic elite side of the world and the other uh, really people trying to survive in, in a community that was, uh, that was dying um, uh, after hundreds of years up there. Uh, and, and it was dying because of, uh, because of, of a, a massive structural shift in uh, fish populations of all things. That, that we'd been fishing cod, we'd been fishing cod more and more and more. Uh, globalization, new technologies allowed uh, the, the Japanese and, and European trawlers to come into these waters uh, and, and just extract massive amounts of fish. And this wasn't an issue until one day when the entire cod population collapsed. And it's been 25 years trying to rebuild this population now. And, and the local communities that were dependent on it uh, they've they've had a really hard time uh, surviving. Many of them moved into lobstering, ca catching lobster, and climate changes started moving those lobster north. So they're they're experiencing a second, uh, you know, a, a second massive wave of, of change in terms of how the local economy works as those lobster move up toward toward Canada and toward Nova Scotia. And so these, this is the way the world happens, right? There, there are these long, slow waves of change, but the things that really get us aren't the ones that we have time to manage the, the, the transition toward. They're the ones that, that pop up seemingly out of nowhere. And the way that you understand what those could be uh, and how you would respond to those is by looking at individual things that you know uh, are happening today and asking not, not what would happen if AI accelerated faster than we thought or, or failed to. Uh, but what would happen if that was combined with, with an aging population that would change the needs and the availability of the labor force? And what if that was uh, uh, tied to, to a social trend like, like uh, shifts in regulation, right? Uh, we have uh, GDPR, which is the, the data policy in, in Europe, uh, harmonized, I think, 28, uh, 27, countries, data policy in 27 countries. In the US at that same time, I think we've we've built 29 different data policies across 29 different states, right? So, so we're seeing this radical fracturing and it's gonna be really difficult for AI to operate in the same way across all of those, uh, all of those governments, all of those areas. And so when we look at it, my point about this is that when we look at change, what we want to look at is the range of social, economic, and technological trends in concert, 
not individually, because, because it's that collision of those waves of disruption that causes the radical change. It's rarely just one on its own, right? Very few meteors uh, uh, land on the earth and destroy it by accident, right? There's, there's, it's normally a conflagration of events. Uh, the word chaos usually has a negative connotation, but you see it in a different way. Um, please explain. Yeah. Well, I look at uh, chaos differently than, than most people. So there's, there's this guy, we all probably know him before business book readers, Michael Porter, uh, one of the great strategy books of all time. Uh, he, he introduces what he calls the five forces model in that, which, which really talks about how, you know, if the playing field is static, uh, everybody competes. It's a, it's a great book for that. The, the, the challenge, of course, is in a world where the playing field is static, the, the winners, uh, the, the incumbents have a massive uh, advantage, right? And they, they win through consolidation. What I believe is that we're moving into a more volatile world. And in a more volatile world, the way that you win is by taking advantage of that, by levering into it. Now, you're, you were at Wharton. Yeah, it's a finance school if I ever heard of one. And, and what you know in finance is that you make your money in the volatility and not in the stable times, you know, not in the smooth seas. When in 2020, the global economy contracted about three and a half percent, but there was a 13% increase in billionaires. Why? Because they took leverage when they could. And that's how you win in a volatile environment, especially one in which we're likely to be more growth constrained because of structural shifts and in population, uh, because of deflationary pressures from, from technology and automation. You know, that, that it's going to be a lot harder to grow, even though we might be running faster. That the, so, so, so you take your advantage in, in the change, not in the straightaway. Um, please explain the two schools of thought, competitive strategy and blue ocean, and why they're irrelevant today, because, you know, <laughs> thousands of business students or hundreds of thousands of business students have been learning that, especially in their MBA programs. Yeah, well, I, I think that they're relevant in certain cases, but, the, but like it's, both of them assume that, uh, you know, that the, the, the cheese won't move. And, and the only problem, you know, if that's going back to a business book called Who Moved yeah. Cheese about how to plan your yeah. career. Uh, the, the only problem is, is today, you know, the cheese looks a lot more like a hockey puck, you know, and it's bouncing around. And, and so the question is when, when the goals uh, and when the opportunities keep shifting, when we're in a volatile environment, uh, strategies that assume that the environment will be the same or that the rules will be the same tomorrow. Uh, as they are today, they don't work, they break down. And so what we need to do in these more volatile environments is really look toward the rogue waves, or if you're, if you're an economics finance guy, the, the structural breaks, and, and, and how do you take advantage of those? Um, you had a great example of how Carl Icahn invested a fortune, lost it with Blockbuster. Why do you think one of the smartest investors employing the smartest minds one of my, even one of my students was uh, one of his top people, didn't see the change and how many of us missed that opportunity to invest, uh, especially in, in Netflix. So, so uh, purportedly, uh, there was a conversation at the board level um, 
you'd have to look back at the book, but I think 2006, 2007, a conversation between Netflix and Blockbuster. And Netflix had proactively gone to Blockbuster uh, and, and said, hey, we want to we want to sell. Obviously, you've got the brand, you've got the scale uh, and you again need to get into the streaming services. Uh, Carl Icahn. Uh, looked at this and he said, hey, you know, what are your core competencies? You know, sort of classic Porter Five Forces. Uh, and he says, you're a retail business, right? Your investments, your assets are in retail, your brands in retail, uh, and technology tends to move slower, right? Than, than, than all the analysts uh, like to say, right? The diffusion tends to move slower. So, so we're going to stay, uh, we're going to stay in, in, uh, in, in retail, and he think, I think he fires the CEO. Uh, the, the former CEO writes a, a nasty letter about this in, in Harvard Business Review, and they, he hires the, a new CEO who I think was the former CEO of, of like Seven Eleven. You know, so yeah, he right. Hires a guy who knows about frozen burritos, yeah, uh, to, to run what had to become a technology company, and and they double down on exactly what you think. You know, there's an explosion of of microwave popcorn in in, in the the blockbuster stores and so on and so forth, and and blockbuster goes bankrupt, right? Because they were assuming that the future would look like today, uh, and Netflix becomes the the uh, top growing uh, business of the the, the 2010s. Um, and and that was that was that was that was a fifty million dollar purchase that, that that Icon could have made, but he wasn't looking at the implications of change. He was looking at it in a linear way. At least that's what I believe. And and you know, if you looked at it from a slightly different perspective, you 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 would have made the probably the best investment of the last decade. I also think finance people are. Most are one-dimensional in how they view things, which is mostly spreadsheet and not forward thinking. And mm -hmm. you hire a lot of people like you, which is, I think, what Carl Icahn's like. He's not a visionary. He's an investor. He's a finance guy. They don't necessarily see the wave until it's kind of washed over them, and then they spend a lot of money catching up. I, you know, I, I, when I was at HP, we saw this exact thing happen. So uh, Carl Icahn had bought into Xerox, the office printer company, and HP really, when you take a look at the business, it makes us money on, on inkjet printers uh, and, and office printers. It doesn't, you know, it has, sells a lot of computers, but that's not where the, where the margin is. It's, it's on the consumables. Um, um, and, and, okay. and so, and so he, he, uh, he and the, uh, CEO who used to work for him, uh, of, of Xerox came in and tried to, uh, force a merger between the two companies. What happened that I think was really interesting was coming into COVID, you know, you looked at this and you said, okay, well, he's got the money. It's Carl Icahn, right? The most, this guy's a more successful investor than Warren Buffett, just to give a sense of scale. Um, He's got the money uh, cashed on hand, and and yeah, this this makes some sense. You know, you you put together the printer divisions, you spin out the tech, the the computer divisions. Yeah, th th this could this could make sense, and it would be really hard for it to not happen in in a lot of ways. Uh, it, you know, if the price was right. Going, this was in December of 2019. This was going on, so going into 2020. So coming out of 2020, something really interesting happened. Uh, HP emerged effectively unscathed in terms of revenue. And stock price, I believe, was up at the end of the year, where uh, whereas Xerox's earnings per share were down 69% by gap. And if you 
trust their their accounting method some, something over sixty percent. You know, and and one of these HP has had a long term, you know, uh, successful growth of its of its stock price and and of its revenue over the last couple of years, whereas Xerox is 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 uh, you know it, it's created and stayed there. And, and the the issue is that one of these companies planned for the future. Uh, added, maintained, you know, some short-term inefficiencies, knowing that there would be a, a radical change. And when it did, it could take the market and it could consolidate. Uh, and, and that, uh, you know, Xerox just chose to optimize and play for the short term. And, and this is the result. Like Xerox would have won if the world stayed stable, but, you know, the world very, very rarely stays stable. Yeah, my, my portfolio accounts for that over the past month, for sure. Um, please talk about the five pillars that improve business performance that their premises behind them are no longer true. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I now get to read precisely one paragraph from the book. This is fantastic. Uh, so I talk about why is business broken? Modern business training rests on five great pillars. They improve performance when the environment is stable. One, scientific management, the rationalization of activity, of business activity. Two, game theory, the quantification of the best realizable strategy. Three, shareholder value, the coordination of all business activities around profit. Four, enterprise architecture, the modularization and measurement of every business process. And five, agile practices, constant pivoting toward a broadly defined goal. These have been the major shifts in business and management theory and practice over the 20th century, whether you start with Taylor or, or whether you end up with people like Eric Reese and Steve Blank and the DevOps folks, you know, Jez Humble, uh, talking about agile practices today. And while each pillar makes sense in theory, all are based on premises that are no longer true if they ever were. And those are that reality is as you assume it to be. In a world that's moving faster, right? Your assumptions, things that were true the last time you looked at them, likely aren't. Uh, that the future will be like the recent past. Uh, we all believe, because our only experience is our own, that we have a statistically relevant perspective on the future. It's not. There's fifty thousand years of mistakes that have been made and 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 challenges and disruptions. You're wise to look at the greater history. Three that near-term value will inevitably create long-term value. What we saw with Xerox is that's not necessarily the case, that, that, that the, rational, uh, rent, the, the rational approach to rent capture is often challenged in the longer term. The shareholder value-based approaches, as we're seeing with General Electric, uh, are, are often challenged in the longer term. That a, that a captain can nimbly steer a ship that is too complex to understand, right? We've, we've been growing these companies. You take a look at a company like Amazon, a company like, like Google, you know, these, these massive companies, even a company like Berkshire Hathaway. How on earth can one person or a small executive leadership team really understand uh, what's going on in the hull of their ship? It's, it's impossible, especially with a radically changing environment. So we need to change the way we communicate through our firms. And five, there's a best practice to wait to adapt to systemic change after it occurs. 
you know, what we've discovered this year is that the companies that were ready to adapt, you know, companies like Amazon, had radically different years than their, their substitutes, than their market competitors, right? Amazon, when COVID hit, they, you know, they had a lot of growing pains. Everyone did. And they, they had a lot of sleepless nights. Everyone did. But they were able to hire a workforce the size of the Ford Motor Company in 90 days to respond to and create the logistics supply chain we needed in our country. And so my question is, is your company ready to do that? And I'm not saying that you, you can um, or that you, uh, that, that, that you have the same resources uh, as Amazon or the same personnel or the same infrastructure. But even if I waved a magic wand and I made all of that possible for you, could your company create that kind of change if the opportunity occurred. And I would argue for 90, 95% of the companies on the planet that they couldn't. And that's a mindset issue. It's not a resource issue. It's not an assets issue. It's not a process issue. It's a mindset issue. And so if we want to take advantage of rogue waves instead of just trying to respond to them, we need to change how we look at the world, how we look at radical change. And that's really what the what the book talks about is, is the, the the nitty gritty of how you get into that, how you do it. So why should you be a kayak? So <laughs> great non sequitur. I love it. Um, when you look at volatility, right? You don't see a lot of you know. And I like to think of the metaphor of like class four rapids you know, uh, whitewater rapids. You don't see a lot of aircraft carriers going down whitewater rapids. You see kayaks. And the reason that you see them is while they might be less stable, you know, than a giant barge, uh, when they flip, it's possible to, to right them faster. And, and in volatile moments, the ability to recover faster gives you Free, you know, free, free ocean. They uh, again follow up on the blue ocean strategy idea. That that's when you create blue. That's when you get blue ocean in volatile times. Is when everyone else is capsized and trying to trying to to um, bail out their boat. Not uh, not just by moving faster or moving in a different direction. It's 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 having that that room to move uh, because you've recovered faster. And so that's where the kayak uh, flip your kayak faster. Uh, analogy in the book comes from. And you mentioned that irrelevant changes can tell us tremendous amount about what has happened, what will happen next, and how we can make the most of it. Uh, how do you identify irrelevant changes? We did about $15 million of research uh, at HP uh, that, that, uh, that we cover in the book in chapter two of the book of the 10 major trends that we know will happen over the next decade. Uh, we also talk about what I call the rogue method, right? I'm a consultant and I wrote the book Rogue Wave. So you've got to have, you know, you got, you got to have a, a rogue method, right? Um, and it, it, for, for looking at it, it change and how to address it. And there are really five steps in it. Uh, the first is, uh, reality testing, right? Making sure that what you think is true continues to be true. If you project into the future from the wrong baseline, you're going to end up with the wrong future. The second is observing systems, looking not just at the thing in front of you, but how it relates to the larger ecosystem. 
and, and then you can start to model what would happen, what inputs, you know, what change in inputs would, would radically shift outputs, what might accelerate, decelerate, break. So we talked about uh, reality testing and observing systems. The third piece is generating the range of futures. Too often in strategic planning, you know, we say, hey, next year we're going to do 6% better uh, or worse. But walking into 2020, this is a great object lesson. Uh, Cirque du Soleil, you know, walked into 2020 with a great leadership team and a great plan. So did Zoom. One of these went bankrupt and one of these did 26 times growth. So the question that you want to be asking in volatile times is what is that range of possible futures and how would I respond to that? You know, a company like Disney that was also built in the physical world, uh, like Cirque du Soleil, uh, did all right. Why? Because they were diversified. They realized that they were an entertainment brand, not just a theme park brand, even though a disproportionate amount of their earnings actually, in terms of margin, uh, come from theme parks. And so what you want to do is figure out what you really are and figure out how you could distribute that value in a range of ways. If there were Cirque du Soleil video games, if there were Cirque du Soleil on Netflix this, this last year, they would have been doing gangbusters, right? Um, the, the next piece is around uncoupling threats and opportunities, right? How do, you, how do you make small decisions today that increase your optionality and potential and, and nip off, I, I think of it as like a decision tree, nip off the, 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 the places, the, the, the bad places that you wanna go. What small decisions, what combination of decisions will, will get you to a good place or a great place in the future? And then the last piece is really about experimenting. Uh, so we talked about reality testing, observing systems. Uh, we talked about generating the range of futures. We talked about uncoupling threats and opportunities. And then the last piece of the rogue method is about how you experiment. Too many companies, I think, uh, mistake portfolios of experiments for trials of a single experiment. So when you look at pharma or or your stock portfolio, you know, you're looking at you know what are a couple of you know high high risk, high payoff things. Um, you know, at every time, at every time horizon, they, 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 you're investing against. You're looking at what are the what are the sustaining investments that I need to make, right? So so that you get those payoffs on the time horizons, and then what insurance or countercyclical investments am I making, right? So when you take a look at the the uh, investment firm that follows Nassim Taleb's uh, approach, they did uh, 36 times growth. Uh, I'm sorry, 30 3600 percent growth, in um, uh, March of 2020, right? And, and so you can make investments like that, counter investments like that, that will backfill uh, if your assessments of the future are wrong. And so what I recommend is that when we look at how we're investing against innovation, that we make sure that we have the right portfolio of experiments that we're doing, as opposed to investing in just one path. Otherwise you can end up in a situation like GM is now where, yeah, they did better and better and better and better. They made better and better and better and better cars for a hundred years. Uh, Mary Barra gets promoted uh, because she's created an electric vehicle that goes 150,000 miles without a tune-up and blows up their business model. Uh, and then, you know, the car blows up <laughs> because of battery issues, right? They're going to have a very hard time because of the combination of a single product category and 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 a single go-to-market motion uh, shifting into the the next generation of automobiles because they they 
took one path forward. Now, we have a question from the audience, but we're going to push put this aside just for a little bit and we'll get there because uh, we have a question about what road wave trends and business does do you see? But we're going to lead into it by having you answer some of these others, and then we're going to jump right into that. So I didn't want that person to think otherwise. How do you profit from randomness? Uh, so I think that, that there are. <laughs> let's 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 find out. Um, I think there's. We we I, I talk about the the distribution. I don't see it here in the book right away, but in the book I talk about the distribution of randomness. You know, there there are different ways that that, that randomness can be distributed. If you think about on on a casino floor, uh, you know what what's going on in a game of of casino war versus what's going on in in, in a game of roulette versus what's going on in uh, uh, at the poker table. Right. At the poker table, the winning hand uh, is only the, the top valued hand, I think, 12% of the time in online poker. Right. Like, so, so you know, in, in, in uh, uh, you know, in, in roulette, you have a completely random one in 38 times chance uh, of, of winning the thing. Um, uh, but because one's a card game and it's, it, it has a limited number of cards and the other one is, uh, you know, you flip the wheel and, and the probabilities are the same every time you end up, and I understand the concept of shoes and, and you can, you can add numbers of decks and decrease the probability distribution, but just stick with poker, but just stick with me for a moment, you know, as the cards get dealt, uh, you know, the probability distribution changes in poker, but it doesn't change in roulette. And so what you really want to know, uh, before you go and, and you, you choose your strategy, you know, is what game are you playing? Your poker face won't work at the roulette table, right? Oh, I didn't know if you were adding on to that. No, I'm good. <laughs> okay. right. You write about behavior change and in that section, you mentioned uh, systemic institution. What is that and how does the leader use it? Yeah, so, so and can you give some examples? Intuition. Yeah. So uh, the, the way the book, let me take a step back to just so people understand the, the larger structure of what we're talking about. So I talk about this idea that if you want to create change uh, in your organization, uh, there are three steps. Uh, people need to be aware of the change. If, if uh, you don't know you're having a heart attack, you're, you're going to have a heart attack. Why would you uh, change your diet, right? Same thing happens in companies. So what's going on outside that's going to cause the need to change behavior? Do you have the skill sets, the competencies within your organization to actually see the future, what you can know about it, to understand what you can't and to take advantage of that? And then the third piece is how do you create a culture uh, that the C and ABCs of, of uh, that, that's able to respond to and take advantage of radical change instead of just hoping that the future looks like the past? And so when we talk about building a, a systemic intuition uh, of, of what are those changes, it really dials into that idea of the rogue method we talked about before, right? How do you reality test? How do you observe the system? How do you generate the range of futures, uncouple threats and opportunities? And then how do you experiment in portfolios? Uh, that's that's, that's kind of how I think about it. 
and I think there's there's an insight here, a very specific one, uh, for leaders who are trying to build teams to to effectively plan for uh, to create radical uh, opportunity from radical change. And that's uh, this is going to be a little geeky here. So I, uh, if, if it hasn't been geeky enough, now we're about to go over the uh, we're about to go overboard, and then we'll come back. I apologize, but in philosophy. There's a, there's a little field called epistemology. This is the study of how we know what we know. And there are really four ways uh, that we know about, uh, about the future, about things that don't yet exist. Uh, the first, and, and we learned some of these in school. Uh, if you wanted to learn all four of them, you'd have to have four master's degrees. So I'm not recommending that. Uh, what I'm recommending is that uh, you at least be aware and make sure that you have these competencies on these teams and you're backfilling with someone like me or someone who is bothered to go and do all that education uh, in the places you haven't. Uh, the first is uh, thinking like a lawyer, right? Thinking deductive thinking. How do you use, how do you, assuming that all of the facts are true uh, and that this, you have the entire universe of, of facts in front of you, uh, figure out what must happen next. Right? How do you use arithmetic? It's basically arithmetic, right? Uh, the second is uh, thinking like a scientist or, or inductive reasoning. And so this is looking at what we know today, what statistically is the most likely thing to be true. The third is thinking like an economist. So we talked about observing systems, right? Economists do stock flow analysis and things like that all day long. And, and, and they look at, at complex models of nodes and links and, and, and what would happen uh, if something up in the upper left-hand corner of your model uh, changed, how would it impact something at the other side of the Rube Goldberg machine that, that you've built, whether it's your business or marketplace, uh, climate change. Um, that's what they do. You want someone who has that way of thinking, systems thinking in, their, in your organization. And then the last piece is what's called abductive thinking. And this is what you learn in, uh, you know, is, 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 a, is a fiction writer, right? If you're a science fiction writer, you learn to think about, okay, well, what if a, something that some fact that we know to be true suddenly wasn't, right? What if gravity didn't exist? You could write a whole novel about that as a science fiction author. Or what if something new, some new uh, radical change came to light, right? What if a meteor hit the earth? Like, how would we respond? And you want to have that capability in organizations at a senior level. And yet in highly operational organizations, right? We take a look at shareholder value and whatnot. Guess who gets tossed overboard, right? People who talk about things they cannot yet prove. And so we need to really be thinking about how do we improve abductive uh, thinking in our organizations? How do we start looking at that range of possible futures? When you take a look at, uh, when you take a look at uh, uh, COVID, eight of the 10 largest companies in America, publicly held companies failed to identify pandemics as a risk. I, I have a weird hobby. Uh, I like to read uh, SEC 10K filings, particularly the risk assessments, because I think it tells you a lot about where these, these thinking skills are limited in organizations. So, you know, in, in a pharma company that um, I'm 
interacting with. You know, they're really good at the first three, right? They've got, they got lawyers at the top. You know, they got, they got scientists at the top. They've got people doing economics uh, in that type of epidemiological modeling, you know, at the top of their organization, but, but they're lacking, you know, when they look at their risks and they're doing a really responsible job. But when you look at their risks, you know, they're failing to think about what would happen if something that hasn't existed in our industry came to light. And those are the real challenges. And, and, and because they're real challenges, they're real opportunities for the companies that choose to pay attention to them and, and choose to find ways that they will be of use to their customers uh, when change happens. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good your uh, life preserver is if you're the only boat with a life preserver. <laughs> right. So um, where do you see, let's get into the future here. Where do you see the life cycle of artificial intelligence and what industries do you think will be most impacted? You know, are we in the first couple innings of this or are we further along? And what industries do you think are going to be most impacting? You talk about this in the book. So, so in, in my book, Rogue Waves, uh, we talk about uh, 10 major waves of change that are going to collide, you know, individually manageable waves of change that are going to collide to create the next rogue wave. And, and one of them is automation. And I think, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a study by Oxford University uh, that looked at uh, occupational automation, right? We're going to replace all the milkmen. We're going to replace all the truck drivers or whatever. And when you take a look at that study and, and many of the things that said, you know, 75% of jobs will be replaced in the next 4.3 years by AI. Uh, a, these were people who did not really understand artificial intelligence, uh, but B, they were looking at it at an occupational level. So they were saying, okay, well, you know, truck drivers drive trucks, you know, and therefore trucks will, will have self-driving trucks. And so we won't need truck drivers. What they didn't do was dig down at a task level and say, okay, well, what does a truck driver really do over the course of a day? And what are the different types of truck drivers, right? A lorry driver in London who's uh, dropping off Coca-Cola, you know, to, to small stores, he does a bunch of things. He, he loads and unloads the truck. He, um, uh, builds a customer relationship with the end user. Uh, he uh, avoids the, the bobbies who are trying to give him parking tickets. Like there are a whole bunch of things he does that AI is not going to do for quite some time. And so the question when you take a look at artificial intelligence isn't like, what will it automate? What jobs will it automate? What jobs will it not automate? What industries will be disrupted? It's you, you got to get down to the granularity of to, to really understand what can and cannot be true. And so when I take a look at the industries that will be disrupted, I look at the ones uh, not where the economics makes sense because people you know, can always be cheaper and, and the government can always backfill with food, right? So, 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 so the issue isn't necessarily that, that uh, AI is cheaper than people. Uh, it's where is it drive higher quality uh, and where are there demographic issues that will drive automation because there isn't another option, because there isn't another life preserver. And, and those are the things I would think about um, moving forward. So I guess that's not quite a complete answer to your question, but that's how to think about it. You write about the undercurrents in the ocean and what we can learn from them in terms of how things change above the surface. 
that there are local microtrends like drones delivering goods to students in China. What are you seeing as a local microtrends and how should we be planning for it? Yeah. That's, a, it's a, it, that's a big and, and great question. Um, the, the, the challenge, and, and I'm going to actually talk about how you should be thinking about them and how you should be planning for them. And maybe I could maybe I could just lay out uh, a couple of those undercurrents that, that you're talking about um, and, and and read them out because I think I think that's that's a useful way of looking at it. Um, so in in the research we did at HP, we identified ten what I call undercurrents or, or what you're describing as micro trends that are going to collide no matter what the instigating event is to shape uh, our future and and because we we talk about ten and then there are subtrends and so on and so forth, they really break it down into what are the economic changes, where are the technological changes, and what are the social changes that we're facing today and so the first one is changing demographics. We see an aging population in all of the major economies, I believe now. We just had an inversion in the United States in the last year, I believe. And that's gonna shift the relationship between labor and consumption. As people get older, they consume less. Uh, and as they get older, uh, you know, they don't go into new jobs, right? Uh, they try and sustain the jobs they have. Uh, the data economy, you know, when you take a look at a company like, Airbnb, right? It's not creating new value, it's extracting value. And so we need to look at what kinds of companies are creating new value and which companies are extracting value using digital technology. Automation. So we're seeing AI, we're seeing robotics, we're seeing an explosion of all of this stuff. And what we were just talking about was that relationship between labor availability and labor cost, right? Like the, 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 the place they go for were cheaper than people that's not necessarily a good play. People can always be cheaper. Uh, what you want to do is focus on where is there a labor shortage and how do we respond to that? Because those are going to be structural plays. Uh, the rise of Asia. So we hear about climate change. It's, it's gotten uh, more and more press over the last couple of years. But what we're really talking about is billions of people entering the US level middle class over the next 15 years. And what does that mean? What does that mean for, for resource availability? And as we see the shifts in, in geopolitical competition, what does that mean for market access? You know, can US companies uh, thrive in China? It's, it's an open question. Can US companies thrive in Indonesia because of Chinese influence? That's also a, an open question. Uh, cheap money, right? So this is the last of the economic trends. So, and this was this was written before before COVID and, and before we decided whatever we've decided about money printing on the planet. Uh, that we're going to see this this shift, this challenge where we're using money to stimulate growth. Uh, we're looking at automation, which is going to to likely have deflationary pressures. Um, and and so the question becomes. You know, how do you drive profitability in this environment, right? Where there's, there's too much money, there's too much access to investment, there aren't enough people to do the work. Uh, and you have the deflationary pressures of automation. That's a growth is going to be a real challenge 
you know, uh, and 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 I don't see the coordination with their between the central banks to manage inflation on a global scale. It's it's going to be a real issue. Uh, so that, those are economic trends, technological trends. We see emerging technologies, so uh, AI, blockchain, um, you know, the Internet of Things. Uh, they're they're you know going to drive massive efficiency. They already are. But the question is, what's the social impact, right? What's what's the regulatory plays? Can can local governments, can national governments, uh, <clears throat> uh, can can organizations like the, the UN constrain companies, constrain actors uh, as all of this happens? I, I think it's I think it's very challenging. Uh, and so, do you end up with very fractured technology infrastructure, where technology in China is different than technology in the EU, is different than technology in the US? And so, we're spending our our rare brain cycles developing the same thing three times, you know? Or do we get do we get better harmonization and we go back to a more rational world? Uh, the second technology issue is around the closing innovation window. So, so you had Martin Reeves on here the other day, and he was talking about TSR fade, the, the idea that, to, that, that the length of time that you can monetize innovation is shrinking. And as we see an explosion of IP production coming out of China, uh, coming out of Indonesia, coming out of India, uh, that, that window is going to continue to shrink as you have more competition. Uh, and so what does that mean? Uh, that you have uh, yeah, that you have shorter, you know, you have to do bigger, deeper R&D to, to differentiate, and yet you have shorter product cycles. It's going to be a real challenge. The, the last technological issue is really around remixing and convergence. So how do you, uh, how, how do you respond to this? There are two ways. One is, you know, we assume that we have enough Lego pieces uh, and that we can start clicking these things together, and the faster you click them together, the the, the more likely you are to win. It's kind of disruptive integration. It's what what companies like AW, Amazon, AWS have done, right? You can you can now build a complex uh, machine learning tool in you know in, in six weeks with three people as opposed to six years with three hundred. Uh, and that that kind of change has caused you know IBM to offload its health business, for instance, right? They they can't compete with a closed system. Um, social changes, right? So we're seeing this, this conversation around digital trust. Is the economy digitizes, you know, what's a public good uh, and what's a private good? You know, going into uh, COVID, I think a lot of people said, hey, you know, my data, my rights. Um, coming out of COVID, I, I have this interesting moral question. If my data can save a million people or a billion people, my DNA, is it mine? Or should that be the communities? It's a really interesting question. It's one that we're going to go through again and again and again over the next decade. And all of this, all of this change is going to tie to new social contracts. The, the social contracts that we've built in the United States and the West, you know, they're based on uh, the Industrial Revolution and then uh, a whole bunch of decisions that occurred after World War II. As we see a new global order happen, a new technological infrastructure, a post-information economy start to be built, 
um, post-industrial economies start to be built. All of that's going to be brought into question once more. And, and we're seeing this, you know, very legitimately in the Black Lives Matter movement. We're seeing it, uh, I believe it's the yellow jackets in, in France and, and the yellow umbrellas, I believe, in Hong Kong, right? This is happening globally. This conversation is happening globally. And, and it's going to be the major driver of change, right? How do we understand the relationship between the individual, the corporation? and the government. So um, a question from the audience. In the past 40 years, U.S. stock market has grown 40 times, while only four times in the past 10 years. How do you explain the change? So I, 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 so it's only grown four times in the past 10 years, but over the over the 40 years, it's grown 40 times. You know, why is it, you know, not maybe uh, growing as fast over the uh, past four years? Or why? Well, I guess maybe it's growing faster. Uh, I think it's now. growing faster as the yeah. economy is financialized. Yeah. Um, so you have, I think, what most people don't understand, and, and, and Mark, certainly like you you probably know more about this than i do <clears throat> so feel free to 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 um chime in uh so up until i think it was 73 nixon got us off the off of gold is that right yeah uh, up until then you had a constrained currency that was constrained by the amount of a real resource after that you you basically could print monopoly money and what happened at that same period of time, we also started to issue stock shares uh, to management of companies in a very different way. Uh, so, so what you had was an ability to uh, contain all of that monopoly money within a financial economy, within the stock market, and uh, try and keep it from causing inflation and the cost of milk. Right. And so what you've seen in the stock market is every time we stimulate that money has got to go somewhere. If you have excess resources, more resources than you can spend, where do you put it? Into more houses? Well, we've bought all the houses we can. Into more jets? You know, if you're Larry Page, you already have a 747. What do you need with the second one? You, that money goes back into investment. And, and the stock market's a really liquid place to put that investment. And so as you've seen more money printing since 2008, and an explosion since COVID, that's going into the stock markets. The equities are the fastest fastest way to uh, put it to work. Otherwise, it's you know it's sitting under your bed. And if you believe the seven and a half percent or whatever inflation we've had this year, um, you know you're, you're losing money on it. I, I imagine that's going to change once supply chain uh, gets straightened out. At least you know how people think about uh, supply chain. I mean, I don't think folks uh, are going to go and reduce the prices right away because supply chain improves. But I think uh, we'll see some kind of uh, difference there. The next question we have from the audience, and we only have about five minutes, so it's, we'll try to get through some of these questions. Future of work. How do employees train for the future in this environment? Because things are rapidly changing yeah. and your skill sets need to be growing along with them. I think there's two questions in there, and I'll get it briefly. Like, what is the responsibility of the government? What's the responsibility of the individual? What's the responsibility of the corporation for maintaining its workforce? Um, I think that we're going to see a shift 
in that is we see the population inversion, right? Uh, High-skilled laborers are going to continue to be higher value. Uh, and so you're going to have to see corporations reinvesting in education in ways they haven't for the last 30 years. The second thing is really what should you learn? What are the life skills? So we see a push toward, uh, you know, like all the companies are saying, you know, we need more people who know basic programming or whatever. Well, I can't think of a skill that depreciates faster than basic programming in the age of AI, right? Like what are the skills you should be uh, learning the thing, the way to think about it is what are the skills you should be learning to get to the next job level, right? What's that minimum criterion? But the bigger thing is to learn those epistemological skills that we were talking about, right? How do you improve your deductive thinking? How do you improve your inductive thinking? How do you improve uh, uh, your Bayesian reasoning, thinking like an economist, you know? And then how do you improve uh, counterfactual reasoning? How do you improve abductive thinking? Uh, how do you think like an artist? And, and my goal for, you know, my nephew is to make sure that he has those skills because those are life skills. You know, learning how to code is a transitory skill. You've got to get good enough at it. But unless that's what you want to do, unless you want to master that one skill, um, uh, you're going to find that you, like most other engineers, four years in, five years in, are moving into management. So is there anything stopping China from being the lone superpower especially as the U.S. continues to split apart due to differences in political and social views. And China has a one-person rule. Uh, their entrepreneurial class is growing faster than anyone else's, and it seems they're focusing on making sure the gap between the wealthy and the working class doesn't become so large that it upends uh, the country. So what do you see there? That's a, ma that's a massive three-minute question. Yeah. <laughs> Um, first of all, I, I think we misunderstand in the West uh, exactly how broad the voices are within the Chinese government. Yes, it is a one-party system, um, but there, there's a breadth uh, at, at the at the at the more local level uh, of perspective. Uh, I think they're doing a really good job at linking centralized planning uh, with with <clears throat> with market competition. This isn't the Soviet Union. This is this is a totally different beast. So, I don't believe that they will be uh, the the one. You know that that this will be a unipolar Chinese power. Um, but I think that they have a very different view. Uh, on what is their responsibility to their citizenry and they're, they're getting there, they're catching up much more efficiently than any uh, country I can think of in, in history. So, so definitely something to watch. Um, you know, I, I, am, I do read a lot of China policy, um, you know, Chinese policy. I, I'm really impressed by what they're, what they're doing. Um, at the end of the day, the US has a lot of guns. Uh, US isn't going anywhere fast. You know, the British lost their empire, but they haven't gone, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the little island is still doing quite well for itself, and, and many of its colonies are too. Um, on the cryptocurrency side, uh, you mentioned that dikes won't hold for central banks to stop private uh, digital currencies. Does that mean everyone will have Bitcoin or be using some type of uh, cryptocurrency? And where do you see opportunity for entrepreneurs? Is that a U.S. focused question? Uh, it could be a U.S. Yeah, it could be U.S. focused question, but we have people from around the world listening yeah. in, so that could be on a global um, question as so, well. 
So, so the question, the, the way I think about it is, is that there are a number of levels to that, uh, <laughs> to that question. Um, the way I think about it, and, and can we go a few minutes over? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. okay. Now, with them, those will stick, and, and those who don't, they'll get the um, awesome. video and can watch it, listen to the end. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for coming. This is just so much fun to be here and having this conversation. So, uh, when you think about digital currency versus blockchain versus, uh, um, uh, you know, fiat, which is you know sovereign currency versus private currencies. Um, there's been a long history of private currency. The, the idea that, that we're shifting back toward that, especially in uh, an age where where money isn't gold backed, may, makes a lot of sense. Um, China certainly is, you know, coming out of COVID is going to try and push its digital currency hard into the countries that it bails out, right? Because there's a lot of debt coming out of this. Um, you know, they, they aren't going to do their do their, you know, asset trades in dollars, they're going to try and do it in their own currency. And they're going to try and push their digital currency quickly into the world through that. It could be successful. I, I don't see a reason why it wouldn't be. Is that a good thing for the US? Probably not. Uh, in terms of will we all have Bitcoin, I think that misses the, the underlying issue, which is as we start to digitize the economy to that next level, we need to have digital automated contracts, right? What we today call NFTs in our, our you know, Justin Bieber videos with, you can buy the copyright to Justin Bieber videos. That's a transitory game. The real question is, what's the value of a digital contract? Uh, that can they can be transferred automatically instead of going through lawyers and and so on and so forth and, and courts and so on and so forth to, to adjudicate. So I think that's going to be a big issue. And to have that digital contact track, you need to tie it to a digital currency, right? So that you can automatically trade. And, and you want to do that with minimum transaction costs. You don't want to have the the you know the Vostro Votro or Vostro or Nostro you know uh, accounts for international transaction. And so I think that you're going to see a lot of that kind of thing happening uh, with digital currencies, whether it's Bitcoin or something that doesn't exist yet, probably, probably something that doesn't exist yet. But that's well, what we really need to be thinking about is that next level of the economy and, and what is the what is the monetary infrastructure? Uh, what is the fiscal infrastructure? And what is the what is the 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 uh, decision making infrastructure, contract infrastructure for 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 doing it? And, and digital currency is going to be central. Jonathan, thanks for taking the time. I loved your book, uh, and it really gives a lot of insights on how you should think about these kinds of problems. Not necessarily the direct answer about what to do, but how to go about thinking about which is what we need to be able to do, especially us entrepreneurs who are running our own companies and how we're going to manage to compete as the world changes so rapidly anymore. So thanks for everyone for um, coming on and listening today. And Jonathan, I hope you're going to write another book and you'll have to write it faster. Can't wait 10 years uh, because of how everything changes. <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody go pick it up. You're going to love it. <laughs> have a great rest of your day. Have a great weekend, everyone. Stay safe. You too. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.